My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to start by telling you about 15 years ago, I was, we were as a family in a very difficult place financially and didn't have money to feed my kids. Pretty embarrassing. One of those things where you're like, what do I do? Remember talking to Lise. And so I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm so sorry, but I, and we, you know, I was in between ministry stuff and doing new things. And just one of those where you're just like, I just don't know what to do. I don't have money to, to buy groceries. And he said, what do you need? And I said, I promise I'm going to pay it back. He's like, no, you're not. Not because I wouldn't, but because he was like, no way. I'm your dad. I remember he wrote a check and I remember getting it kind of sheepishly and But the point being that I knew who to go to when things were difficult. And if some of you have heard me talk about when I started in this role a few years ago, I said to the Lord, I will never talk about money. Ha, ha, ha. The Lord has made sure that I will talk about it frequently. I'm getting used to that. Um, So I just want to tell you when we shared about the budget um, and we started that process, uh, we were at what we said. We were 5% over. It was like, this is awesome. We're finishing the year great. And it was almost like as soon as I said it, some switch got flipped and it went. And over the last six weeks or so, it's just really declined. And we're now starting a brand new year, fiscal year. Yay, Lord, you're going to provide for us. And yet we're 20% under giving, which is about $11,000. And so I'm bringing it to my family. And we say the same thing around here. The Bible says a ton about giving, but one thing it never does is guilt you into giving. It says you should decide with the Lord what to give. And I'll tell you, when you walk with Jesus, it is a part of being a follower of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you call another church home, first of all, we're glad to have you. So glad you could be here. If you're still committed to that church, please give there. They're counting on it. It's, it's important. It stinks to talk about, but I also want to say too, we've got Matthew 25. It's an awesome thing. It's an amazing thing. But if you said, hey, I'm not going to give any more to the general, and I think I'm just going to shift my stuff over to Matthew 25, that will affect us. That will change some things. Same thing with debt. We're trying to pay off that debt. We're trying to go after it. But if, if you just dial in and like, nope, I'm not going to give here anymore. W- we're your local missionaries, and uh, we ask that you would consider having conversation with the Lord and generously giving. It's a part of following Jesus. It's something that we count on. So, glad that's over with. I want to pray. I want to ask the Lord to uh, meet us today, and, but I also want you to, to join me in feeling that burden because I felt it, and it's the Lord has it. We want to give it to Him, but let's pray. Lord, I truly am um, glad that's over. And, but I do pray, Lord, and even as I've shared this week, I, and I shared it with our elders, Lord, I shared it with our staff, I shared it with my family. We've been praying, we're asking, Lord, and we know you provide for the church through people. And Lord, you tap on hearts and you say, hey, maybe it's something that you can start doing as an act of worship. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that you would provide for us. Would you make a way? Uh, Lord, would you give us what we need um, and then some? Uh, we trust you with this, Lord Jesus. 
Uh, we know that uh, most of the time these things are just a test, and so we want to trust you and not panic, but we do ask Lord, that you would stir hearts and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, right towards the end, verse 45, uh, it, you can also open it up on your phone. Just don't open up Facebook or Instagram or any of those things. We will find you and hunt you down and take your phone. Just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, focus a little bit here. Um, you can also just sit back and listen, whatever the Lord will use for you. But one of the things I wanted to start with, because as I read the story this week, I thought a lot about what causes us to do things. The emotions that we have, things that well up inside of us that where somebody might ask you, why did you do that? And it may be some crazy thing you did or said or just acted uncharacteristically. And then why did you do that? And you're like, I don't know. Just kind of boiled up inside of me. Something came over me. So I started thinking about that and thinking about good stories. And when you read a good book, what makes a good book usually is a great plot for sure, but it's also characters that you care about. You're invested in them. You stay up late at night turning the page because you want to know what's going to happen to them. You want to know that they're going to be okay. You watch a movie, you know right away if you like the main character and they're going through stuff. I heard one guy say plot is very simple. You take a character, you put them up in a tree, you throw rocks at them, and at the end of the movie, you get them down. But you care about that person in the tree. You care what's happening to them. I've also found, and I don't know if you've the same thing, but when there's a bad guy in a movie or in a book or somebody that's just sinister, the villain, I really hate them. I really hate them. Sometimes Lisa and I are watching a show or something and there's just somebody and they're just perfect villain, bad person, doing things bad, saying bad things. They walk in the room and you know, great now where we can pause the show and Lisa hates I wanna do this, but I'll grab the remote and I'll pause it and I'll go, I really hate that guy. I should just play. Why do we have to pause? I know, but I just want you to know how much I hate him. And I really think bad things are going to happen to him in this show. And I really want them to happen now. Do you ever feel that? Where you're looking at somebody and you're like, you deserved. Oh, that's why you're getting, you can tell when it's a character too. It's like a minor character. And you're like, oh, they're going to die. They're totally going to die. They're not even. So we feel this stuff. We feel people. And so I wanted to think about how does Jesus look at, people? What does he feel about them? What does he feel? How does he feel about you today? If you had to describe it, you probably would be like, well, let's see. Last week, uh, there was that thing. There's, oh, there was that thing. And I mean, I guess B minus, C plus, uh, C, probably C as far as the way I interacted with God this week, kind of listened, kind of talked. I mean, I, I don't know. I would say, how does Jesus feel about me? He is maybe like this. Well, you know, you go up to hug him and he's like, mm, and you're like, oh yeah, right. I see, for sure, I know, I get it. He's standoffish, or maybe he's angry. I think your answers versus his might surprise you. Those mamas and daddies reading those letters, praying for their kids. I want you to put that as your category when you think about God today, how he thinks about you. And by the way, parents, your kids get older. Those prayers don't change. <laughs> They're the same ones. You're asking for the same things. 
Let's look at Jesus today. Let's see how he acts and which feelings and emotions are motivating those actions. Luke 19, verse 45. Here we go. Jesus entered the temple and began to say nice things, teach people, hang out, put his arm around people. It's so great to be here in the temple today. No, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out people. Hello, welcome to church. That's what it was, this church. He began to drive out those who sold. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Get out, get out of here. So there are certain things that happen in church and there are certain things that do not happen in church. Went to Wheaton College. We had chapel three times a week. It's kind of like church three times a week. And so, to be honest, as a college student, to have to go to church three times a week, you're like, I got some extra homework to do. I had to be in the seat. So you sit in the seat. Every once in a while, it was interesting. But most of the time, just trying to get through. But there were some things that happened, some surprising things that happened when somebody came in and did something that shook things up. Like the one time we walked in and there was a guy, a senior in college, duct taped to the balcony. <laughs> we're all walking into our seats and we're looking up and here's this guy and he's like, hey, <laughs> 20 feet up, just duct taped. His roommates decided that was the thing they were gonna do that day was tape him to the balcony. So you can imagine, chapel couldn't start, he's really taped. So they're like ripping it off. He's yelling and trying to get him down. Or the guy that walked in and right in the middle of the sermon, we had this sloping floor that had carpet in the aisles, but the, where your feet were was like hard tile. He took like a couple hundred marbles at the top and he just dumped them. And you heard this, tink, 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 tink. They're just rolling. We're all like, <laughs> you're picking up your feet as these marbles are rolling by. Or the time at Christmas time when the, one of the choral groups sang the Hallelujah Chorus. We listen, fine, great, it's music at least. We can get through this faster. And you know that part in the Hallelujah Chorus, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And then the conductor goes, Hallelujah, does the full thing. Instead of that, somebody had this whistle. And when it was Hallelujah, woo, just fired it off. And so the conductor was like, and then finished, the, he was like, this is awesome. That's how I felt about chapel that day. <clears throat> but there were other things that weren't funny. They weren't pranks, which stood out to me and made me think of what Jesus just did in the temple. One day a guy was speaking and somebody, one of the students stood up. Don't do this today, please. <laughs> right where they were sitting and started full-throated <clears throat> yelling at the speaker, challenging what he said. So we were all like, what? Whoa, what's going on? What's going on? Everybody's watching. Here's the student, here's the speaker. They're back and forth. I was like, now this is exciting. That still wasn't the most exciting thing. That still wasn't the most memorable, the one that has stuck with me that I can't get out of my head. And that one, I'm not gonna tell you till the end. You got to sit here, but I will tell you because it's going to tie everything up. <clears throat> Jesus though is doing something unusual in church. This was their worship service. 
When he stood up, people are like, that's not supposed to happen. That's how people were feeling. This is one of those moments. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive people out. Imagine if that's how we started church at Pleasant Valley. You out, you out, get out. And I started running up and down the aisles, turning over chairs. I'd lose my job really fast, right? We don't do that. But that's what he's doing. He's kicking people out. So I always have questions when I read God's word. I want to ask questions like, why is this happening? And so my first question you know enough about the Bible to know that this temple is kind of enemy territory. And so I'm asking Jesus, why are you even there at all? Why even bother? The system's corrupt. The priests are corrupt. They're rotten. You keep calling them out. Why bother going? This is Herod's temple. It's not even Solomon's temple. Herod's temple. He's just such a tool. Trying to kill, kills babies, trying to kill Jesus. Killed one of his sons. This guy's a tool. This is Herod's temple. Why are you even there? Way back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 10, if you're interested, Israelites have abandoned their relationship with God. And God has warned them again and again and again and again. He says, okay, I'm going to send you into exile because you're not listening. And Ezekiel has this vision and what he sees is this chariot and God is on it. And he sees it lift up from the temple and leave. God's presence leaves the temple. Jesus goes into this temple and it's a big con show. It's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, turning knobs and dials, smoke and mirrors. It's not real. What are you even doing there? What's motivating you, Jesus, <clears throat> to pursue people in this place? Why are you in enemy territory? And I want to tell you, it's very old. It's a very ancient reason. It's deeply motivated. It's the deepest kind of motive. He's got a picture in his mind when he enters that temple. And it's this, you and me and the world banished from the temple, kicked out, not allowed to be in there. The entirety of the human race is banished from the temple. He's got to go in there. He must flip tables. He must drive out what doesn't belong. So I want to focus the lens to the first temple. Now, what's the first temple? Is it Solomon's temple? Say no. <laughs> Is it the tabernacle in the desert? Say no. The first temple is in Genesis chapter one. The Garden of Eden was a temple. And guess what was there? for you to enjoy in living color, face to face, grab his hand, walk around, have a latte. God's presence, he's right there. They're walking around, they're talking. He's saying, look at this, blah, 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 flower that I made for you. Look at this crazy animal. I did all of this for you. They're talking, they're enjoying each other. But something happened. We all know this part, don't we? Something happened. Adam and Eve were placed in that temple. They made a choice. Their choice was essentially to say, we don't want you to decide good and evil for us. We want to decide. We will make the decision. They bit the fruit. It's probably not an apple, by the way, but they bit the fruit and everything fell at that moment. Now, creation had been that place. It had that new car smell. It was awesome, brand new. 
They chose to sin. And I want you to just picture this way. Black tar just starting to cover their arms and fingers, just creeping up and over their heart and their face and just dragging them down. And it's sin and it's shame and it's guilt. Now, they weren't finite creatures yet, meaning they could live forever like that with death. And so God said, get them out. Get them out because if they reach for the tree of life, they'll be this way forever. Get them out. So he puts an angel in a door, flaming sword back and forth. What's it mean? You go near, you're going to die. Don't come in here. And listen to this verse. Speaking of Jesus driving out people from the temple, Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man. Get out! East of the garden, place the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if Jesus has a picture in his mind, when he's doing this flipping of tables and driving people out, he sees Adam and he sees Eve. And so I picture them and I like to think about this stuff. I like to think about 30 minutes after they're kicked out. Do you imagine they probably were within, like they could still see the gate. They could see the angel. They could see the flaming sword back and forth. And I think Adam was maybe sitting there scratching his head going up. It's just fruit. Can we, I mean, maybe this is not forever. Maybe we can get back in there. Starts to go forward and the angel's like, you know, and he's like, okay, okay, okay. Steps away. And here's what I picture. Adam sits down, crosses his arms, looks up. He's close enough that the sword and the flame is illuminating and reflecting in his eyes. And it shows hot tears streaming down his face. Eve has her back to him and she's itching herself. She's got new clothes that God made and God had to make it by killing an animal. And they're sitting there and they're mad. They don't have food. So Adam has to go and plant the first row of whatever. He gets on his hands and knees. He's trying to figure out this whole thing of tilling the ground. There's thorns, there are weeds. It's hard. And Eve is over here going, you done yet? No, why don't you get out here and help me? First fight, for sure, was happening right here. Okay? They were at each other, back and forth. He comes back in. His hands are bloody and blistered. Eve is chewing on a piece of dried fruit that she was able to take out of the garden because God is gracious that way. This is what he sees. He enters the temple and he remembers the tears. He knows what's happening. How does God feel about them? Is he like me when I watch the character in the movie that's bad? Because they were bad. I mean, technically they were bad. Is he like me? I hope you get what you deserve. You deserve this, so get out. Is that how God feels? No. Hurts his heart. He's broken. His main emotion, deep, deep love for his kids. Just like you saw those parents. Deep love for his kids, his children that he created. He loves them. He aches for them. They're lost. They don't even want to be found, but they need to be found. God so loved the world that he gave himself for you. Old Testament is full of it. Love the Lord your God. His everlasting love reaches to the skies, his faithfulness forever. It's the eternal emotion that Jesus has for you right now. Love. So when he walks into that temple... He sees them and he sees you. Why is he doing what he's doing? 
Why is he driving out what shouldn't be there? Because he sees you broken and dead in your sin. When Adam and Eve sit outside the garden with tears running down their face, we all sit outside the garden with tears running down our face. We are all in need and Jesus is coming for us. But let's get more personal because we say God so loved the world and you're like, yeah, 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 I get it. He loves everybody. God loves the world. Like, you know, loves everybody. Let's make it personal. Ken Geyer is an author that I love. He wrote a devotional. Some of you, I gave it to you after you got baptized here. And he said of this moment, he imagines Jesus standing in the middle before he starts going crazy. And by the way, this is the second time he's done this. He did this once early in his ministry. This is the second time towards the end. There's only a week left before that happens. So the second time he's done it and he pictures Jesus looking around and what was happening. If you look at the temple, that was like a square outside court for Gentiles, people who weren't Jews and foreigners. That's the only place they could go to worship. Nowhere else. Go into the inner court. That's where the Jews could be. You keep going inside Holy of Holies. Nobody could go further in than they were supposed to go. So what else was happening in this outside court? They're selling animals to be sacrificed. They're exchanging money. You had to exchange Roman coins for Hebrew shekels so you could pay the temple tax. You had to buy the right sacrifice. On a day in Passover, up to 250,000 animals would be sold in one day. And sacrifices made in one day. So this stuff is going on and Jesus looks over here and he sees this guy, Gentile. He's there, his hands are clasped, his eyes are closed. You can see his lips moving. He's trying to pray and these animals are running by him. He's getting jostled. People are bartering and trading. They're like trying to get the, no, no, let me tell you, I got a good price for you. No, no, I got a price for you. You can do this. Hey, you need to change your money. And here's the guy and he's trying to pray. And you can just see Jesus just starting to boil. Sets his jaw, he's fired up. This is what motivates him. Personal, one person who can't pray who can't get to him, who needs to get to him. This is his motivation. So when we think about this guy, and he says this, this is not how it's supposed to be. My house shall be a house of prayer, a place for you to talk with me and connect with me. So here's my question. God, if you banished people, and I think we could say this, just open it back up. Open the door, let us back in. If this is what banishment causes, all this craziness, people can't get to you. We make up religious stuff, all this junk, which is what was happening in the outer court. Just junk and money. They're cheating people. They're stealing from people. All in the name of, this is worship. Come on into church. Why can't you just fix it? Just open a door, remove the angel, let us back in. I imagine Jesus answering this. I'm on it. I'm on it right now. Watch this. Verse 40, 47. So after he's done this crazy thing, it says he started teaching in the same temple that he just drove out people. As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were, and this is the first time Luke shows this, seeking to destroy him, to kill him. They did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. I love that phrase, hanging on his words. Jesus cleans house and then invites people over. I've said this before, but I'll tell it again. Have you ever seen, so Jesus, imagine him getting fired up about cleaning the house. Have you ever seen, my mom used to be this way, like when it was time to clean the house, when company was coming over, whew, she fired up. 
And I would tell her, why don't we just leave it? We're just lying to them anyway. <laughs> we don't live this way. Let's just invite them in. They can see the socks on the ground and this is how we live anyway. That didn't work by the way. <clears throat> she still made me clean, but I found shortcuts. I remember one of my jobs was vacuuming. I realized that when you vacuum, you know those lines it makes on the floor? You can make those lines without plugging in the vacuum. <laughs> so I would go around the room real quick and just make sure I hit everywhere. My mom would come, did you do it? Yeah. yeah. She goes, you didn't even turn it on. I said, yeah, but look at the lines. I did, I did it. <laughs> Jesus has this same, we're gonna clean house so that people can come over. He's cleaning house so he can teach. He wants people to be able to hear. He wants them to understand. He knows that a mind and a heart that are clear, and I think you would agree, focused, well-rested, not anxious about something else, not frustrated by someone or something, not distracted by somebody selling sheep, more importantly, not held down in guilt or shame by dark secrets. That mind and heart just might be able to listen to the Son of God teach. Reminds me of Isaiah's prophecy. John the Baptist said, prepare the way of the Lord. How do you do that? Remove the obstacles. Lift up the valleys, smooth out the path. If it's crooked, straighten it out. What's the, what's the image? So that people can make it in. They can see, they can have a clear way. David, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit. Now you may not think you want this intense Jesus but you do. You want the one who is motivated by love and righteousness to clean us up. You want to say, come on in Jesus. So what's the result of Jesus flipping tables, driving people out? People are hanging on his words. They want to hear from him. They want a front row seat. They love his teaching. They can't get enough of it. It says that words find a perfect place to land in their hearts. When he speaks, they have to have to be in the crowd. They have to listen. They want to be close to him. When he cleans house, it clears away the garbage and we see our need for him. And so they hang, just think about the wording there. They hang on every word. Think about this past week for you. Was there a moment when you heard his voice clearly through reading the Bible, which I encourage you to do, very important. Prayer, or you got with other people, you gathered around God's word together in a small group or a one-on-one, -on -one. you got coffee with somebody, you talked about the Lord. Was there a moment when you heard his voice in that way? You were hanging on his words, clinging to them. Does his word find a perfect place in your heart? Are you hanging on Jesus' words right now? Not mine, his. Are they something you cling to? So let's go just beyond Let's go beyond just knowing a few verses because it's easy to cherry pick phrases from Jesus that people like and leave out the ones you don't like. I want you to think about him, the word of God, the word made flesh, does his presence like a string of Christmas lights, one after another, as he teaches you something, lights up brighter, brighter, intensifying, incrementally brightening your heart, your soul, purifying you, giving you light. It keeps growing. Does it move you? Does it pull on you or can you just leave it? Does it tug at your heart? So I'm gonna do something. I need a helper. You. Let's give you, actually, we're gonna get a little more. This, this represents going into eternity, can't you tell? Okay, this right here though, 
Genesis 3. So you hang on to that. Remember we talked about Jesus' motivation going all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. They're sitting outside the garden. Genesis 3. So here we are in the temple. He's just flipped tables. He's just driven people out. He's teaching people. When he teaches people, you know what happens? Genesis moves. Why? Because random? Because the Old Testament was like plan A and oops, it didn't work. We better try plan B and send Jesus. No. From the foundation of the world, this redemptive thread has been moving. And as we listen, as Jesus starts to move in our hearts, it starts to connect to us. It starts to get us wrapped up. And I'll tell you this about my own heart. Hopefully I can get out of this. He has me. He has me. Every fiber of my being shows that he has come after me. And this thread also has gone through the centuries, cannot be broken, has found a way, raised up churches, raised up followers of Jesus, the same one, people hanging on his words, one after another, can't help it, have to be near, have to be close to him. You can guess where it's going, but we won't, I won't tell you until the end. You can put it down now. You just dropped the Jesus threat. Oh my goodness. Just kidding. You're fine. Good job. Thank you. So are you hanging on, tied to, pulled by, eternally connected to the living word of God? And I mean Jesus. Yes, it comes through his word, but he is the living word. Is it pulling you? Now, it can mean that just one truth from his word should convict you, affect you, move you. You can be led by it, but it's so much more than that. It's about being connected to him, to the promise. Genesis 3, the promise was given for the gospel. Jesus is here. He's clear in the way and he's teaching because it's been the plan from before the foundation of the world. Are you connected? Or... So you can be hanging on Jesus every word or you can get hung up on his words. They're like a hook, like a barb in your soul and you're just like, ah, bothers me. Bores me sometimes. I can't even think about sitting at his feet. Or these guys, the one group for whom this was absolutely the case that it affected them in a negative way, they were hung up on his words. Chief priests, scribes, principal men. You know what you can put there in parentheses? Pastors. The pastors of the day, the shepherds of the day, the ones who were supposed to be telling people this, they hated his words. They hated it. This was their house. That was their business selling those sacrifices. They were making a sizable profit. But I want you to realize something happens here. From this moment on, they were seeking to destroy him. If there is a lever in heaven that was like a, like a breaker level, not like a little tiny one, but like the main breaker, like... If you're going to switch this on, here was the switch. Right here. This flipped a switch. In a week, Jesus will be dead. 
No doubt about it. So here's the question. Who flipped it? Who flipped the switch? The Bible tells us God's hand on the switch. Boom. Why is he here? Why is he driving out and not running away because he knows he's going to make him mad? Why is he staying and teaching? Why is he setting his face to the cross? He's flipping the switch. He, it's his plan. We know this. He says this in his own words. You're not killing me. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. This happens because I say so. Those most affected by his actions and most triggered by his words, hung up, not hanging on, will be at the forefront of his murder. And now they have some words for Jesus. They finally get their chance to say something to him. And it's one of those, I don't know if you've ever had this, something bad happens in your life and you're like, I'm going to, I am going to talk to God about, he is going to hear from me. I have some things to say. Or when I get to heaven, first thing, I'm going to ask him about this, 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 and this. It's kind of how they're approaching this. Luke 20, verse one, last few verses here. One day, again, he keeps teaching in the temple. Everything in us, in our normal response, when you know people are trying to kill you, what do you do? Run, <laughs> totally run. He keeps teaching. He's teaching in the temple again. He's preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders come up to him and say, we have some words for you. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you authority? He answered them. Hmm. Actually, let me ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John the Baptist, wild man eating locusts out in the desert, telling people, repent! Was that from heaven, parentheses, God? Did that come from God? Or is it just man-made? So they get together. What's the poll? I don't know. What's the polling say on that? Well, did we test the phrasing on that? Did we ask that group? How about, how about those? No, I don't know. We can't say that. We got to say this. They're just politicking. That's all they're doing. It says they got together. They discussed it with one another and saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why don't you believe? But if we say from man, they might kill us. So let's just say we don't know. Let's say we don't know. I think, yep, the polling says, say, don't know. And that will, yeah, will survive. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not telling you squat. That's my interpretation. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus, we work here. We live here. This is our living. You're messing it up. It's our turf. Tell us, what authority do you have to do this? Can I ask you a question between the authority of Jesus versus the opinions of the world? Which one has more sway in your life? Today, which one has more sway? Which one could move you more? The supposed spiritual leaders of Israel take no stand here. They remain in the mushy political middle because they're afraid of looking bad. And I'm just going to say this. When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to what he's saying, if you take a similar position, I don't know. Is Jesus the son of God? I don't know. It's debatable. Is there judgment? I don't know. Seems kind of mean. I don't want to say that my friends won't like that. My, my workplace, it's not really accepted to talk like that. I'm just going to stay neutral. I am Switzerland when it comes to Jesus. Peace. If you stay there, you may survive the battle, but you will not survive the war. 
You may create some space for yourself. You will not survive the war. Persistent refusal and rebellion against Jesus, against what he says, will not get you answers from him. In fact, he says, there's something that can happen. It's happening to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders right now. You keep refusing. You keep saying no. You keep saying no. I know you know. So guess what? I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm not going to answer anything. This is a thing that could happen to you. You could be asking Jesus questions that he won't answer. Nope. How do we do this? Well, a prideful heart of stone that our questions are really just like, come on, Jesus, you better answer this for me. We're mad. We're upset. You have some explaining, some serious explaining to do to me because I don't think this works. Let me see if I can fit you in, Jesus. Let me see if I will allow you to speak. I got a reputation I do manage, what others might think of me. So I'm going to stay neutral or I'll just pick and choose. Because you know what? I got some questions and you better have good answers or I'm out of here. That's how a lot of the world approaches this. Could be how you're approaching it. I mean, what gives you the right to tell me what to do? That is the original sin in the Garden of Eden. What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Isn't your authority based on some ancient obsolete rules? Huh? Tell me, Jesus, huh? Crickets. Silence. Now he does ask a question, but you know what he's doing? He's just drawing out their heart to reveal what they really think and what they really believe. As I said, they stay in the mushy political middle. Gross. You don't know. You do know. You do know. You're just not willing to admit it is the subtext. You do know. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Those questions will not be answered by him, but you're still going to have them. You're still going to be asking this question. I wonder if Jesus really does have authority over my life in 2021. Is, is that still a thing? So how do we get to a place where he will answer questions? I just want to tell you, and we'll finish with this. It has more to do with heart posture than it does the actual questions. In fact, you can bring your deepest doubts to him. If you bring, I don't even know if you're God, but you bring it with a heart posture that is humble and contrite and broken. David says it, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God. What does he want from you? Broken spirit, broken heart, contrite, humble. He says he will never deny that, which that's not very much. All you're doing is admitting you're broken. <laughs> you're just like, yep, I have nothing and I really do have some doubts and I do have some questions. He says, bring them. You struggle with some of the laws that I have in scripture that have definitely made it through, not just ceremonial, but they actually have made it through. And you're wondering, how could I say that? Come to me, come to me in humility, a broken and contrite heart you have yet to deny. How ironic that the fisherman, the foul-mouthed fisherman, the former tax collector, the former religious zealot who was trying to kill people for his faith, and the other guys, the other disciples. Can you even name all the other disciples right now? I don't think I could. Daniel, John Boy, like there, some of them are so quiet and don't make a lot of waves that you're like, I don't, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, like they're not on the pages as these like, wow, guys, they're just quiet. Do you know why? They're humble. 
They're broken. They know they need him. But these people I just listed, they know exactly who he is. They know what authority. I imagine Peter, I love Peter, standing off to the side, listening to this conversation, the scribes and the religious leaders saying, what authority do you have to do this? And I think Peter's just like, let me speak, Lord. Just let me say something. What authority does he have? What are you talking about? He's the son of God. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. How can you not see it? That's how the disciples were feeling. So what about you? What does it look like to ask Jesus questions, even difficult ones, with a broken, humble, tender heart? A humble, tender posture knows who has true authority. That place of humility knows, believes, and acts in a way that says, Lord, I want to be the dwelling place of God. If you missed it, the temple just walked into the empty temple to make temples. The temple himself who said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Just walked into the empty temple, flipped some tables, taught some people in order to make you a temple. Lord, I want to be the dwelling place of God. I am your temple. Do with me what you will. Clean me up. Drive out my prideful ways. Drive out my desire for anything that is not of you. Drive out my insistence that I be the one who runs this place. Drive out my sin sickness with your righteousness. I want you, not me, to be in charge of my life. I want to learn from you. Teach me, instruct my heart, grow my spirit, lead me. I repent of my ways. I lean on your ways. I don't know what else to say, but I'm broken. Please. That's it. This is our part. Humble submission and surrender. Let it happen, Lord. Back to chapel, Wheaton College. The guy was speaking. Most of us were ignoring him. Not that interested, but I do remember the general heart of his message. It was about surrender. It was about humility. It was about realizing that God was the one who could fill those holes. And as I was in and out of paying attention and kind of sleepy and maybe trying to do some homework, this kid in the back stood up. Not at the end, not a response time, not, hey, come forward if you want prayer. In the middle of the sermon, stood up, started walking down the middle. And everybody's like, oh, what's happening? Got up to the stage, got right here, took his shirt off. Everybody's like, whoa, what's happening? And everybody's like, everybody that was sleeping before doing homework, now we're all like this. Okay, this is chapel. Something's happening today. And that kid got on his face and literally wrapped his arms around the legs of the speaker. And I remember the speaker knelt down and I think the sound people kind of realized, hey, there may be a conversation that happens here. Killed the sound. He reached down, remember, he just put his hand on his shoulder kind of whispered into his ear. I don't know what they said, but you know, I knew what was happening. I knew that that kid was saying, I'm done. I'm done with this. I don't even know what you're offering, but I think you have an answer for me. I want it. I want God. I'm stripping off me. And I want what you have. Jesus, the temple, who said, tear down this temple. Lord, just make a way. Just let us back in. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going to be torn in two so that you can get back in. 
into his presence, but better than that, to have the presence of God dwelling in you. Let the worship team come forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you for offering yourself to be broken, to be torn, to be ripped apart. Symbolically, Lord Jesus, when you died, the veil between the most holy place in the temple and the outer courts ripped from top to bottom, saying, come on in, come on in. Lord, we hear your promise in Genesis 3 that said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Spoken to Satan, the enemy, before they were even kicked out. Here's the promise of the gospel. One will come and he will destroy you. He will make things right. Lord, thank you for doing that for us. That promise is true. It is real. It is yes and amen in you today. And God, we ask for the grace to respond, Lord, to hear your heart for us. Lord, to ask the question, how does Jesus feel about you today? He is deeply in love with you. He was willing and did give himself completely so that you could be in his presence forever. God, give us the grace to humbly hang on your words or to humbly ask you questions with a broken spirit that says, Lord, I want all of you. I don't know how all this works, but Lord, I'm here. I'm on my face. Lord, we pray for your good spirit to lead us now as we sing together. In Christ's name, amen.